From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Galt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we spend the hour with Barbara Mahaney, who tells us about her years reporting for the Chicago Tribune, about her experiences as an Irish Catholic raising children with her Jewish husband, and about her new book, Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Barbara Mahaney. She's a former reporter and newspaper columnist. For many years, Ms. Mahaney wrote a regular two-page column for the Chicago Tribune that told stories of her family life. Ms. Mahaney is Christian, and her husband is Jewish, and their life as an interfaith family has often been the subject of her reflections. Barbara Mahaney is the author of the recent book, Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. Barbara Mahaney, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much. I, I've asked you if you could just read a, a short piece from from the book, and it will become apparent to our listeners why this is not necessarily representative of the narrative of the book of the, as a whole. But if you wouldn't mind just reading that one short passage. Absolutely. Month by month, season upon season, we march through time. We choose, savor, savor it all, every blessed morsel. Or let it slip away, unnoticed, unrecognized for the majesty, the miracle each moment offers. Pay close attention is the beckoning. Behold the holy hours. And that's Barbara Mahaney reading from her recent book, Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door. Well, this book um, is not uh, a story. It's Mm -hmm. a collection of stories. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection of stories that are organized around a calendar. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the structure of the book. When a, when a reader comes to this book, what will they encounter? And how, how are they to approach this book, ideally? Um, the book is arranged by season. But the interesting thing is um, it begins with a winter and it spirals through the year, um, through spring and summer and autumn, and winds back up in a winter. But the inherent um, structure is that it's not um, a flat plane circle, which is how many of us often think of a year, but in fact it's a three-dimensional spiral. There's an ascension through across the arc of, a, of the year. And um, so we begin in winter, the season of deepening, and we wind up in winter, the season of stillness. The subtle message, the hope is that um, through this practice of slowing time and paying attention and beholding the sacred, we are at once, I talk about the paradox of um, the sacred paradox of we are deepening to ascend. So we go deep. Because, um, you know, we're rising to a slightly higher spiritual plane, moving a little closer to the essence of who we're meant to be. 
Now, I was going to ask about that word ascension because it's got a physical aspect to it, but it's also got a, a spiritual and religious aspect to it. And are, mm-hmm. you, are you meaning it in both those ways that we're not just rising to the, the, the lengthening of days, but we're rising to maybe a lengthening of our souls? I, I, I mean it um, maybe not lengthening, but, but moving – Moving to a slightly higher plane that we're we're it's a progress we're moving towards something um, and I think of that as a vertical ascension so yes I definitely am drawing from the 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 more religious meaning of the word well and I, I wanted to ask about this because I noticed uh, that that structure of splitting winter in two starting mm-hmm. in winter and ending in winter. What part of the process did that choice arise? Was that always the intention from the beginning when you started no. the work or or did you sort of discover that along the way and what was that? No, like? it was a discovery. It was a discovery. Um, I was playing with organizing it by seasons and organizing it by months and uh, the seasonal outline just sort of fell into place and as it fell into place, it just it just magic. It was one of those mysterious little things that happens in the creation of a book. Um, so really, it's begin. The, the book begins in January, but January is the depth of winter, and it moves toward um, the, the winter at the end is really December. Um, so it's moving through a year, but we, you know, I overlaid this seasonal construct on it, and. Um, I love the seasons. I've always loved the seasons. The se- seasons to me, are, it's just this. This kaleidoscope, this ever-shifting kaleidoscope that I say is a – it's a call to attention. You know, as you just watch the, the – literally every single day, the light switches. And as the light switches, the flowers in the gardens are responding to that and the birds are responding to that. And everything, the whole call to um, – the whole – all of nature is responding to this beautiful shift, ever-shift. And um, it's a constant call to attention. And I want to come back and ask you more about this, how nature plays into this book. But first of all, I just kind of want to ask about the genesis of the book itself. You say that in the process of writing the book, you mm-hmm. discovered this structure of, of sort of splitting winter in two and, and kind of how to arrange it. So how did this book come to be? Uh, were you just were you just sitting around one day and saying, I think I'll write a book? <laughs> or did, write a book. <laughs> did, did someone did someone come to you and say, you know, I love I love your your work in the Tribune, and I think that you should collect it into a book. Sort of, how did the genesis of the book come about? Well, so um, you know, I'd been a, I'd been a writer at the Chicago Tribune for 25 years before um, I started one. Um, I started writing a, a blog, which um, came to be because I had a 13 year old son at the time who had as. as think you've mentioned that um, I'm in a Jewish Catholic family. So my then 13-year-old son had just had his bar mitzvah and had just gotten a couple of envelopes of cash in which he was able to uh, buy himself a refurbished laptop. So I got the hand-me-up old laptop. And with that came software to build a website. So he built me a website one night when he should have been doing his homework, one December night, and um, then looked at me and said, Mom, you can do this. So um, I gave it a name, pull up a chair, and I started writing. And every morning before dawn, I would get up. And I wanted my editors at the Tribune to know a certain type of writing that I that there had not traditionally been room for at the Tribune. And I wanted to articulate to them exactly what this this deeper kind of writing could be. And the best way to articulate sometimes is simply to do it. So I just got up and I started writing and mining the landscape of 
my home front, which is where um, the holiest work I do is, was done, which is mothering and um, living in an old house, inhabiting an old garden. Um, and I just started writing. And every morning I would just write about whatever most captured my imagination. And uh, I had been writing for about seven years before we um, we moved to Cambridge. My husband had a Neiman Fellowship for journalists at Harvard, and we were renting an apartment. And on the desk of this apartment we were looking at, I saw the stacks of poetry and divinity books. And I wanted to live in that apartment. The books spoke to me, and there were you know book sta- bookshelves all the way to the ceiling. You had to get on a ladder to get to the top of the books. And it was this brilliantly curated collection of divinity and poetry books. And it was that landlord who said to me, have you ever thought of a book? And I said for the first time, well, why, yes, I would love to write a book. And he said, what would that book be? And I said, a book of common prayer. And um, to me, these essays that are deeply grounded in the home front but infused with the spiritual um, are my version of common prayer. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Barbara Mahaney. She's author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. Well, just a moment ago, you you mentioned this concept of a book of common prayer. And when mm-hmm. you say that, the the thing that comes to mind is the Episcopal faith. So are you Episcopalian or what? what is your, what is your background? I'm not Episcopalian. I'm Roman Catholic by... Um by lifelong learning um, and by birth. Um, I was uh, raised by Jesuits and liberal Catholic nuns. Just my the year of my first communion was the immediate post-Vatican II. So I grew up uh, Catholic and um, I married a wonderful Jewish man, a deeply observant Jew. And um, our family has um, chosen to braid together the two faiths. So our boys are being raised in both faiths and our family very much embraces embraces all things. Now, what has that experience been like when you say that you braid together the two traditions? What is that like in sort of day-to-day practicality? Day-to-day practicality? Well, last night we had um, Hanukkah, latkes, brisket, the whole deal. I made it. Nice, nice Irish Catholic brisket. There you go. Um, what it means is um, we were blessed that we happened to be in Chicago, which has traditionally been or has long been the four of Jewish Catholic relations. So when I, a devout Catholic, was dating my deeply observant Jewish uh, Jewish boyfriend at the time, um, and we both knew that our tradition and our faith meant so much to us that neither of us could give it up, but we also couldn't imagine a life without each other. So we went to talk to a wonderful priest who said, um, you know, it's the same God. It's just two different religions. Just keep going forward. And he pointed us to a couple um, who were very much pivotal, a uh, pivotal partner in a group called the Jewish Catholic Dialogue Group, which was couples who were dating, maybe getting engaged, maybe early, you know, newlyweds. And that group evolved into, by the time those couples had married and had children who were just about school age, they started a school, the Jewish Catholic, um, it's It's called The Family School. And the um, fundamental belief of that school is that we are raising our children in both religions. They are fluent and literate in both 
faith traditions. Um, our boys, we have two boys. One right now is 13. One is 21. Both have made First Communion and both have had bar mitzvahs, which is interesting. Um, and I wholly embraced Shabbat, which is every Friday night's um, pause, the holy pause. Uh, we light candles and bless the wine and the challah. I love the Jewish festivals, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, the high holidays. In the book, I call autumn the season of awe, drawing specifically from, you know, the days of awe, which is the Jewish term for that beautiful bracket from Rosh Hashanah, the new year, to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, it sounds like you had a great deal of support in making this choice to have a, a, a dual faith family. Mm-hmm. Um and you mentioned Chicago as being uh, an a special catalyst for that mm-hmm. possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that this would have been impossible in other locations, or just would have been more difficult? It, it would never. It, it couldn't be impossible because it, if it happens here, it can happen anywhere. But I think it would have been more difficult having inspirational families, a circle of inspirational families. I still remember driving downtown to the first meeting and the woman who was leading the meeting, it was just a, a, a gathering of families who were about to start the school year. And she just said, you know, you're you're here at this table because one or both of you is passionate about your religion. And I just looked around the table and thought, that's a pretty cool reason to be drawn together. And um, my boys, while there have been chapters that have been struggles and, uh, you know, the cognitive dissonance of growing up Catholic and Jewish is rather apparent when you are a Catholic Jewish kid. Um, both boys have come to treasure their capacity, their natural born capacity to kind of sit in the middle of a duality and to always understand that there are there is more than one way to view the world. So they are very comfortable seeing the world through their dual lenses, even though at times it makes for some uncomfortable moments. You're listening to Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Barbara Mahaney. She's the author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. Well, since we've been talking about the Jewish tradition and you mentioned your falling in love with Sabbath, mm-hmm. one of the things that was very evident to me in reading through your book was the idea of pausing, the mm-hmm. idea of stopping and looking at what is there mm-hmm. and being exposed to the, the the rhythms of life. And I wonder, you know, if you could speak a little bit about kind of how you saw that Sabbath tradition kind of informing your writing in the process of this, this mm. book. Interesting question. Um, I mean, I think I somehow taught myself, I think I have a profound belief and understanding. I've said maybe it's because I was a pediatric oncology nurse before I was a journalist. Maybe it's because my father died at 52 of a heart attack before he died. Um, Maybe I laugh and say maybe it's because I'm Irish and there's that Celtic (laughs) shadowy uh, darkness that stirs my soul. Um, But I I have a palpable sense that um, you know, these are the holy hours and the holiest way to live this life is by recognizing it as, you know, one moment upon another moment. And um, I 
love the Shabbat pause. I think my writing practice became a practice of pausing, um, getting up every morning and sitting down in front of that computer. And there was something, again, slightly mystical, slightly magical about um, the fact that I started doing this daily discipline of writing in the age of blogging, a word that I think is ugly that I don't like. I don't like to say, but there is there is a level of vulnerability when you're sitting in front of a computer and you see that little publish button and you're going to hit that publish button, even if only five people are reading it or 15 people are reading it. It's not the same as penning it on a piece of paper in a journal that you're going to close and tuck on your shelf and no one might ever see until after you die and then, God forbid, they open your diaries. But um, so it, 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 there was something about that writing process and sitting down in the shadowy hours of dawn and just deepening and trying to tune into whatever it was that had most captured my imagination and the previous 24 hours, what felt like there was something to be mined. And so I would sit and I would write and I was, you know, I've talked about it being sort of like, you know, a butterfly net. I was netting these moments of my children's life, of um, of the shifting of the year of what was unfolding in the garden. There were times where my meditation was literally, I remember this one like seven day span um, in which I was recording the unfolding of this one particular, it's called Korean spice viburnum. It's this magnificent, um, extremely perfumed uh, flowering bush. And so I, I was writing each day about what was happening. I mean, like you're putting a magnifying glass to life and to just write a meditation on each of those days. And it became much more than just about the Korean spice but viburnum. It was about, you know, expectation and, you know, the hallelujah moment when it finally unfolds and just like shoots out those um waves of perfume. So the writing practice really became part of the spiritual practice because it made me sit down and it made me go deep and it made me crystallize those moments into words. Um, You know, the challenge of putting words to those deep pulsing thoughts and feelings is a real challenge. And so that's what happened. So if I'm hearing you correctly, this the the pieces that filter into this book started mm. out not intended for a book, but instead no. just intended as sort of a daily practice of capturing mm-hmm. and being attentive mm-hmm. to life as it was unfolding mm-hmm. in, it looks like probably about 750 words a pop mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and, and, and hitting publish every day and just having that discipline of attentiveness. Mm-hmm. But when I look at the structure of the book, I see those essays, which I imagine some of those are filtered through from the blogging days. Mm-hmm. But I also see recipes mm-hmm. and I see collections of dates and blessings around those dates. Mm-hmm. And I see also at the bottom of, of the page a sort of running footnote, sort of a, um, uh, a structure that, that sort of says field notes from right. various months. And so as as we look at this, you know, how – how did that process of bringing these things together in that particular way sort of come about? Like you, you mentioned the the person at the apartment who said you should write a yeah. book, but then how does that come from that to this sort of very interesting uh, and oblique structure of of different elements? Uh, that was fun. That was really fun. So I so I started the book with a stack of seven hundred essays 
that I had to sift through and call and decide these belong together. And that's where the themes start running. And um, once I figured out the architecture of the book, which was these seasons, um, the spiral of seasons, I then spent a joyous summer. It was the summer we had just moved back to Chicago from Cambridge. And I sat at my kitchen table all summer and I wrote all those, I call it the interstitial matter, all the pieces that weave the seasons together. And I call it my Zydeco whirl of joy because um, it's, it's my belief that all the sensory channels draw the sacred, draw in the sacred, have the potential to draw in the sacred. So I, and I was just honoring the seasons. So I have my wonder lists, um, which are just sort of these, can I call them attempts to be poetic little lists of just sort of wonders of the season. I had the blessed bee calendars in hopes that each little sort of meditative, um, instructional would offer possibilities for helping people to begin to seize the day. I loved the field notes at the bottom because I'm so in love with nature. And I, it was my way of saying, this is what's happening in the heavens. These are the stars that are moving into a dominant position. This is what's magical with, you know, Perseid's meteor shower. This is, um, this is the month. This is what the Native Americans call this full moon and that full moon. I just find those moon names so poetic. And this is what's happening in the meadow and this is what's happening in the stream. It's all a call to attention. So I sat there that summer and that was when I took these 35 essays and I had laid them out by season and then I needed to stitch them together. So I stitched them together with my... um with my multi-layered um, elements that um, all are just a celebration of the seasons, of what each season offers us. What I loved about those field notes especially is that they flow, they completely disregard that one essay has ended and yeah. another essay has begun. <laughs> they they flow at the bottom like a river that just mm -hmm. sort of ties together. And it, it really – I mean I come from an academic background where you're used to – a chapter has a beginning, a middle, and an end. An essay has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then you're on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And there may be a thematic connection, but there's no visual connection. There's no structural connection. Mm -hmm. And what I loved about those little runners at the bottom was how how much it broke the expectation of ending. Mm -hmm. And it, it reminded you that that even if you've finished one one reflective essay, this is a piece of a much larger mm -hmm. mosaic, a much Beautiful. larger whole. Beautiful. And thank you for thank you for appreciating that. Not um, not everybody who's read the book really gets it. Why why are there these like sentences at the bottom of the page and why are they running on? But I actually got the idea for that, um, which the the art director, the designer, completely executed. But I was looking at several haggadas, which are you know the the Jewish story of the Exodus that everybody at the table shares, and um, there were a few haggadas that. Um, in Jewish text, text, it's not uncommon for text to run vertically down the margin or horizontally across the bottom of the page. So that multi-layeredness was part of what um, what I thought could be interesting. And thank you for appreciating it. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with journalist and author Barbara Mahaney. Uh, she's the author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. This is Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. 
I love that you just brought up the image of the Haggadah because when I was reading through your book, that that image was very much there for me, this hmm. notion of a, of a text in conversation with itself. Hmm. And in, in, in Jewish tradition, you'll have, uh, if you look at the Talmud, for example, you'll see one centerpiece that's being argued with by a text that's wrapped around the left-hand side, and both those texts are being argued with by another text that's being wrapped around the right-hand side of the page. And all of the different pieces are, are in conversation. They all form a whole, mm-hmm. but each one of them is sort of an individual unit that you can read on its own. Mm-hmm. And I, since you since you talked about the Gata, um how much of, of that kind of Jewish textual structure was in your mind or, or sort of factoring into the construction of this book? I don't know if it was consciously in my mind, except for, you know, my suggestion to the editor. You know, I Xeroxed a bunch of pages from various Haggadahs and said, you know, why don't we, why don't you think, let's see if there's some way we can play with this. But I think what's happened to me over the almost 25 years that I've been married to my husband and we were dating for about three years before that um, is I've absorbed so much of Judaism I love to read Abraham Joshua Heschel. I love the Jewish thinkers and the Jewish poets, and I love Jewish prayer. I think I didn't consciously set out to have all these elements talking to each other, but I think it's just um, – I hoped there was some magic happening there in which the recipes weren't just out there floating on their own. They hadn't just been randomly thrown on the page, but that there was that sort of inner dialogue um, within the larger conversation. Well, in talking about the structure of the book, I want to move now from the visual structure to um, some of the more kind of thematic structures. And one of the things that I was struck by is a real candor Mm -hmm. in your writing Mm about finality, about death in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those things are very present in this work, but they're not present in a morbid way. They're not present even in a mournful way. Mm-hmm. They're present in, in what I would – and I don't want to call it a matter-of-fact way, but it's it's a way of saying – it almost seems to say to me, this is part of the seasonal life, mm-hmm. that, that death and dying is, is part of it, mm-hmm. and we need to face that, but not in a way that dis- disables us. Mm-hmm. Am, I, am I reading that correctly in what you wrote? That's um, that would be a fair and accurate assessment of. Again, maybe it's because I was a pediatric oncology nurse. Maybe it's because at the Tribune I was often drawn to stories about um, stories that amplify the preciousness of life. Um, maybe it's because of the profound loss after my dad died. He was the light in my life and it was really dark after he was gone um i just have this really palpable sense that we heighten our aliveness by very much understanding that as you said it's the seasons it draws to the close um so if you have sort of a subtle understanding of that and maybe that's the celtic me um you just live more alively to make up a word because I love to make up words. Um, and it's not depressing or morbid. It's just it's just an acknowledgement that, you know, if you know that you have so much time, if in fact you understand that our days are numbered and they are, <laughs> I don't know anyone for whom they haven't been, um, then you just live each one with 
a more accelerated sense of this is the now. Well, that that comes out strongly in in several of the the vignettes throughout the book, but one in particular stuck with me, and that's the story of Joseph Zeman. Am I yeah. am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, better known to longtime Chicagoans as the Pigeon Man of Lincoln Park, and in the one particular essay where you you talk about about his life and also his his mm-hmm. death, mm-hmm. you you wrap that in a reflection about about Saint Francis of Assisi, and almost. There's a moment there where you gesture towards this notion of interconnectedness between St. Francis and Joseph Zeman and your own experience of of sort of knowing him. And I wonder if you'll take a moment and just sort of walk us through that memory. The story of Joseph yeah, Zeman. Yeah, of that. So Joseph Zeman was um, – Joseph Zeman is, is emblematic of so much of what I loved about being a journalist, which um, I always say is this license to exercise your insatiable curiosity and – to um, to tap on the shoulders those wonderful characters you pass in life and you just have to know their story. So literally I was driving down Western Avenue in Chicago and I saw this little stooped man sitting on a fire hydrant right at Lincoln Square and he was just covered in pigeons. And I mean dozens and dozens and dozens if not hundreds of pigeons. So I would be a crazy fool if I didn't turn my car around and go back and, you know, try to find out who is this guy and why is he sitting there and why is he letting the pigeons all over him. So I did what a good journalist does. I circled back and I took the time to discover who he was and why he sat there. And I often fell in love with people I wrote about and I fell in love with Joe Zeman, um, who was so proud that someone – Someone with a notebook, with a reporter's notebook, was stopping to listen to his story. And I followed him around for a couple days. He took me to his little upstairs apartment and showed me his elaborate method of, you know, divvying out his bird seed and into little baby food jars that he carefully washed and dried and waited till the next morning. And I loved writing the story of Joe Zeman, who, as he sat there on the fire hydrant with his, you know, palms up, arms out, palms up, as I write in the essay, it was literally the veneration pose. And um, it didn't take long for me to discover, as I noticed in him, he had a great affinity um, for with St. Francis of Assisi. In fact, he had made, um, he had this huge stack of postcards of the prayer of St. Francis. So he was very, very cognitive of the fact that as he sat there and hundreds and thousands of cars and trucks and buses rumbled by him each day on Western Avenue, that he saw his holiest job in life as sitting there and demonstrating to the passersby that it's just as easy in this world to be good as it is to um, to show decency as it is to show hate. So he was a living embodiment in the quietest, quirkiest way, honestly, um, of the prayer of St. Francis, the, you know, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. And he felt that he found peace with his pigeons. He says, um, he said to me, and it I write about it in the book that his whole growing up life, he was an outcast in his family. He was epileptic from um, early childhood on and thus something of a scourge in his family and found the friendship of a pigeon, of a bird, just so much more gratifying than the struggles he would have with fellow human beings. So, uh, so I wrote a profile of Joe Zeman and 
bless him, proudly he carried around a laminated copy of it for the next three years. And when he died, um, he was hit, ironically, on a December night, a December afternoon, he was hit by a man driving a van who didn't see Joe, the invisible Joe, um, who had thought his whole life he wasn't seen. So he literally wasn't seen and was killed immediately. And the Chicago cops called me because they had no idea who this was, but God bless him, he was clutching a laminated copy of this story that told the world who he was. And so the piece in the book is a meditation on, um, you know, that sad, sad night when I found out that my my old friend Joe Zeman had been crushed on a city sidewalk. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today to journalist and essayist Barbara Mahaney about her new book, Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door. If you're interested in finding out more about Barbara Mahaney's book or her life and work, you can visit our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Not Seen Radio. We'll be back in a moment. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with journalist and author Barbara Mahaney. She's the author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. This is Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. So as I was reading this book, I was seeing that you were weaving together nature's calendar, the liturgical mm-hmm. calendar, but there are also occasional moments of these little call-outs to kitchen gods or minor <laughs> deities of the winter. or And I, I just found myself being intrigued, saying, so is this tongue-in-cheek? How, how seriously, like, is... Is there is there a, a piece of, of sort of pagan religion coming in here as well, sort of nature having its own set of, of uh, divinities as well? And I just – I found myself wanting to know more about your spirituality. So how do you see the world spiritually? I'm not pagan. I'm not <laughs> pagan. <laughs> I've been called a lot of things recently, pantheist, post-theological, Buddhist, Jewish, pagan. Now let's add that to the list. Um, I, I – um, I am of the school, perhaps, of Emily Dickinson and Mary Oliver and my mother, who long said, has long said, you know, don't let the church get in the way of God. And um, I sometimes have this image that I'm living inside. You know those old-fashioned Easter eggs, those sugar-spun Easter eggs with all the little intricate carvings? I sometimes feel um, – I read lots of storybooks and chapter books when I was a little girl, I, so I sort of exercised my imagination early on. I sometimes feel as if I'm inside one of those um, old-fashioned vintage Easter eggs, carved Easter eggs, and um, everything around me is, um, you know, from heaven's dome, the star-stitched sky, to what's pulsing up from under the dirt, to um, the kitchen gods. You talk about the kitchen gods. I mean, when I'm standing at the cook stove on a cold winter's morning, and I'm stirring porridge, and I'm dumping in a handful of cranberries, or chopping dried apricots, or throwing in walnuts, I'm stirring porridge, but I'm whispering love prayers 
and I'm thinking of my boys and I'm filling their bellies and their souls and their hearts with what will sustain them through the day. And some days are much more arduous than others. Um, so if there's a reference to kitchen gods, it's 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 just me lightheartedly referring to, um, you know, I don't want to be droning on and serious all the time. So um, it's just my nod to, you know, a sort of a sense that there's always a chorus of angels and saints around us and they whisper. Clearly, you had a lot of support, and it sounds like this school has been a, a great treasure to you. Mm -hmm. Has there been pushback from either of the communities? Have you ever been sort of collared by a you, you mentioned the Jesuits, but maybe like a an angry Benedictine or something, no. <laughs> or Dominican you know saying probably because I stay away from you know I just keep my I keep my eyes focused on what I'm doing, and if I mean that's one of the scary things about having a book out there because I you know I've long had my heart on my sleeve as a Tribune writer, but um, my soul is now on my sleeve, and I know that you know there are people who might want to throw tomatoes at me for the you know. For the way we've chosen to do it, but um, I surround myself, I suppose, by people who um, embrace what we're doing, who might look curiously at it. But no, we have not gotten the kibosh from anyone, and most blessedly, not from our parents. You know, I have a devout Catholic mother who goes to mass every day of her life. She never once um, contested. Uh, she totally embraced my husband and the idea of us being married. And my husband's father goes to synagogue, maybe not every day, but often, often. And he never voiced any concern about the fact that his son was marrying a nice Catholic girl. It's probably not what he dreamed of, but he went with it. You've also mentioned that that uh, there was at least one Catholic religious leader that was supportive of this kind of, of yeah. braided relationship. Um, have other religious leaders been supportive as well? Um, I mean, Old St. Pat's, which is the oldest church, Catholic church in Chicago, that survived the Chicago fire, um, has been a hotbed of hospitality towards um, towards all religions, towards, you know, it's just a, it's a communion place. It brings people together. So everybody at Old St. Pat's has been really embracing. We belong to a synagogue um, in which... Um, the rabbi is incredibly welcoming of non-Jews. I've been on the bima both times for my boys' bar mitzvah. I've been on the bima other times. I actually wrote the Shabbat guide. Um, I wrote a Shabbat guide for our family school, but um, I loved the moment when our rabbi called me up to um, present the Shabbat guide to the entire synagogue, to the entire congregation, and had me, the Irish Catholic, was standing there teaching teaching the Jews how to do Shabbat. I thought that was a great moment. But um, not every rabbi would be so welcoming, and I'm highly aware of that, and I'm deeply, profoundly grateful to um, the clergy we have surrounded ourselves with who are welcoming and draw out the best from both of us rather than shutting doors on us. Now, you used a term just a moment ago, on the bima, for our listeners oh. that are not familiar with that. What does that mean? The bima is the – it's effectively the altar. It's, you know, that's where, you know – the Torah is read. The Torah is kept in an ark, um, and the bima is the altar. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, if you wanted to see a visual mark of inclusion of an Irish Catholic yeah. in the Jewish community, <laughs> inviting them up to to be part of this process at the bima is a is a good visual indicator. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. yeah. 
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Barbara Mahaney. She's author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. We're going to pause now for a short break, and when we return, we will conclude our conversation with our guest, Barbara Mahaney. Things Not Seen is a weekly interview program that explores the intersection of culture and faith. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dolt Radio. That's D-A-U-L-T Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And thank you always for listening. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website at thingsnotseenradio.com. So if you are just now starting out listening to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the entire catalog just like you were traveling back in time. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with journalist and author Barbara Mahaney. Uh, she's the author of Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. This is Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. So what I'm what I'm hearing you saying is that in your life, you, you are deeply, deeply formed by your Catholic upbringing and mm-hmm. particularly the Jesuits. Mm-hmm. You're deeply, deeply informed by your encounter with Judaism through your husband and his family. And beyond that, you're open. I'm wide open. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's yeah. lovely, a lovely way of putting it. Well, how how have people received this book? Have you gotten feedback from readers? What have they been saying? Um, this was this is really beautiful. One of my dear, dear friends um, who had a bestseller this past summer, her book, um, The Mockingbird Next Door, about her relationship with Harper Lee, which just, you know, skyrocketed across the New York Times bestseller list, said to me, that's my that's my wonderful friend and former Tribune colleague, Maria Mills, who's been something of my fairy godmother on this process, although I keep reminding her that she's, you know, up in the stratospheres and I'm just, you know, driving my old station wagon from bookstore to bookstore. But she said to me, you know, Barb, the real reviews come in handwriting and human voices. And I found that to be such a sustaining thread to hold on to. And it 
has been so deeply profound. Some of the most wonderful moments are um, friends sent me a picture of the book, you know, stained with, you know, coffee rings because she said as she reads it, she has to put down her coffee cup to ponder what she's just read or the dog-eared pages or someone wrote me and said she takes it into the bathtub all the time. So I was laughing that, you know, I'll have to tell the publisher if there's a second printing, they're going to need to publish it in plastic sleeves so it can be taken into the bathtub. But it's it's um, it's people writing to me and telling me about a particular line that won't leave them or um, – an essay. It's it's been really gratifying. I talked. I've talked a little bit about. Um, I was taking a poetry course. I started taking poetry classes in our year at Harvard, and I can't stop. Um, and I was taking a um, an edX course, one of those online MOOCs, and I learned a wonderful, wonderful old Victorian word, mullapuff, which is the word for a dandelion seed head right before the wind blows and it scatters across the landscape. And so I've taken that. It's a noun, but I've turned it into a verb, mullapuffed. And my my image is that um, I have all these seeds inside slowing time. And what's happening now is it's mullapuffing across the landscape. And to find out that those seeds are being planted in people's hearts and souls. I mean, that was what I prayed when I when I wrote the book. And I had no idea if it if there would be seeds for other people. Um, so to find out that something's growing in someone is pretty beautiful. Well, to stay with this image of the mullapuff, um, is there another is there another uh, seed case that's getting ready to blossom forth in you? Is there another book that's uh, forthcoming, or is this a this is, is this just going to stand alone for a while and, and sort of see what happens? There's there's nothing literally in the works. I had turned in a proposal, but um, um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with that, just because the world of publishing is an interesting place these days. I would love to do a collection of essays um, on motherhood. I think actually my strongest pieces, pieces that get passed around, um, pieces people tell me they've, you know, clipped out and tucked in their kitchen drawer or their wallet or their bedside table. A lot of those pieces are often essays I've written about motherhood. So I would love to do that or a book of daily blessings, a book that's just simply daily blessings. Those are possibilities, but there's nothing. Um, I, I haven't signed any contracts anywhere yet, so... Well, Barbara Mahaney, I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. We've been speaking today to Barbara Mahaney. She's a former reporter and newspaper columnist, and for many years, Ms. Mahaney wrote a regular two-page column for the Chicago Tribune that told stories of her family life. Ms. Mahaney is Christian, and her husband is Jewish, and their life as an interfaith family has often been the subject of her reflections. Barbara Mahaney is the author of the recent book, Slowing Time, Seeing the Sacred Outside Your Kitchen Door, published in 2014 by Abingdon Press. Before we close our show today, and in honor of the polar vortex, which has again gripped the city of Chicago, I'm going to read a brief poem by Alfred Austin. Now, Austin died in 1913, and he was never a popular poet in his time, nor was he a popular poet to history. But he did manage to succeed Alfred Lord Tennyson as Poet Laureate of England. This is My Winter Rose by Alfred Austin. Why did you come when the trees were bare? Why did you come with the wintry air? When the faint note dies in the robin's throat and the gables drip and the white flakes float. What a strange, strange season to choose to come when the heavens are blind and the earth is dumb, when naught is left living to dirge the dead 
and even the snowdrop keeps its bed. Could you not come when woods are green? Could you not come when the lambs are seen? When the primrose laughs from its childlike sleep, and the violets hide and the bluebells peep? When the air as your breath is sweet, and skies have all but the soul of your limpid eyes, and the year, growing confident day by day, weans lusty June from the breast of May. Yet had you come then, the lark had lent in vain his music, the thorn it sent, in vain the woodbine budded, in vain the rippling smile of the April rain. Your voice would have silenced Merlin thrush, and the rose outbloomed would have blushed to blush, and summer, seeing you paused and known, that the glow of your beauty outshone its own. So timely you came, and well you chose. You came when most needed my winter rose. From the snow I pluck you, and fondly press your leaves twixt the leaves of my leaflessness. My Winter Rose by Alfred Austin I hope that wherever you are, you are warm and with loved ones. And from everyone on staff here at Things Not Seen, thank you so much for listening. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios, overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Adam Yaffe engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.